Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Performance Enhancement Specialist, Nick Grantham. Tune in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get Nick Grantham on for a long overdue episode. So in this episode, we chat about a lot of the things that I've been harping on about over the last couple of months. And not, not particularly on the technical side, this episode definitely goes down the route of personal development rather than professional development. And what I mean by that is networking how to build experience, how to be in a position to be able to leave a job that you're not happy or get a job in the first place. A lot of the stuff that Nick's also spoken about over the last five, probably 10 years now. So a really interesting insight into how Nick sees the industry at the minute and some of the pitfalls that people fall into, especially on the employment side. So we talk about Nick's stagnation as a coach a couple of years ago why that happened, how he moved through that, and how he has structured his personal life um, at the minute with his consultancy. So a really interesting chat, and Nick, if you've ever heard Nick speak before, or been around Nick, it's always always entertaining, always plenty to talk about, always plenty to say. So I'm sure, I just know you'll love this episode. Right, and I was I was a snob. I worked in the English Institute of Sport, and I thought my shit didn't stink. Okay, I, I thought I was amazing because I worked with all these Olympic athletes. And then I remember talking to Alan Cosgrove, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, you've got some good athletes there." Nick. He said, "But those athletes have to come and work with you." He's like, "Well, it's part of their agreement with their sport that they have to train out of your facility. They've not picked you to work with." So like, whereas I work privately and run my own facility. So anyone that comes to work with us, if we do a crappy job, they'll leave. So just before we do get into this episode of the podcast, I want to say a big thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar, Human Track, and now Force Decks. So the big news coming out of Val Performance is that acquisition of Force Decks and all the staff, the fantastic staff that come along with that acquisition. So a really exciting development in terms of what Val Performance can offer in terms of uh, testing solutions. So you've maybe heard of the Nord board, you've maybe heard of the groin bar, um, but if you are interested in a affordable uh, motion capture device, make sure you have a little look at Human Track. And also there is a post recently on LinkedIn from Dr. Daniel Cohen, who was the uh, one of the founders of Forstex and explains why they decided to partner with Val Performance moving forwards. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. And if you are interested in any of the Val Performance products, head over to valperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Val Performance. So big thanks to them guys for sponsoring this episode today. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening I have the pleasure in speaking to Nick Grantham and five years in the making. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Well, thank, thanks for finally getting around to me in your uh, in your alphabet, you know. So uh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. Jokes aside, um, obviously watched the podcast grow from strength to strength and was involved in one of those early sort of roundtable football discussions. So it's, it's an absolute pleasure to be invited on to talk to you. No, thanks, mate. Thanks for giving up your evening or part of your evening to have a little chat. Um, just no anyone worries. that doesn't know who, 
anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a bit of a, a brief background on where you started, kind of what you've done in the middle, and then what, you, what you're doing currently. Yeah, so uh, I'm probably one of the old and bold now uh, in terms of physical preparation sort of community in, in the UK, certainly. So um, I, I left school at 16. Um, GCSEs did that, um, went into banking as a, as a safe sort of job, worked for Barclays Bank. That's kind of what all my family did, got safe, reliable jobs. Um, then I left that after two years and went and did four years in insurance and I was horrific at that as well. I was bad at both jobs, just financial services. And for a person that got D in maths, probably wasn't the smartest move to go into financial services. Um, and, and I was horrific at, at both of those jobs and slowly saw my life being confined to a sort of a metre by metre cubicle um, and, and living for the weekends and getting the Sunday blues and all those sorts of things that you, that you see. Um, at, at the same time, I was I was sort of taking part in taekwondo and competing in taekwondo and that really kind of lit the touch paper for my interest in in sport and it was probably one of the first books that I picked up and actually chose to read outside of being at school about how to make weight it was Nancy Clark's nutrition guidebook which basically helped me cut weight and make weight and then that sort of interested me in like physical preparation I wasn't the most talented taekwondo um fighter so i needed to make sure that i was fitter and stronger and and all those things that go with it um and that kind of led me to to friend um alan cosgrove who people may be aware of uh from his work out in america but alan and i competed on the same teams together he went to university uh, spoke to me at that university at one of our squad training and, and that was kind of that was it then i went back to night school did an a level at night school with a did two years with the only male in a group of nurses, uh, which, which was kind of cool. Um, <laughs> and yeah, did, did some hard yards trying to, trying to get the A level that I needed and then, uh, managed to get my way into, uh, Chester, which was a college at the time, Chester college, did my undergraduate there as a mature student and then stayed on an extra year and did a postgrad in, um, exercise and nutrition science. So that was kind of like your formal background. And then very fortunate, I think the landscape was very different back back then um the britain had done pretty poorly at the olympics so uh, investment started to come on board from uk sport and two jobs popped up one at the british olympic medical center which steve ingham got and one at lillyshaw sports injury and human performance clinic working with british gymnastics which i got funnily enough we both applied for the same two jobs and i think the right the right decisions were made i think uh, steve working with the olympic guys and rowan was a good fit um I, I don't think I would have fitted in there. Um, so I was lucky. I sort of started off as an exercise physiologist, sports scientist, working, getting ready one year out from, sort of, well, two years out from Sydney Olympics. And it's like, geez, uh, I should have been doing this in about 10 years' time. So very lucky. Got that. Um, worked there as a sports scientist. Got bored of sports science very quickly, just measuring people's blood and lactate and VO2s dull um i wanted to know what happened in between uh and again by luck or by chance looking at america what was going on out there strength and conditioning was coming to the fore and you figure that whatever happens out there comes across the pond at some point so i started getting to snc took the first nsca certification in the uk up in leeds fortunately for me unfortunately for the gymnast there was a gymnast that was injured i started working with him 
and whether it was by my program design or probably more just like dumb luck, he managed to pull off some technical moves that he hadn't been able to do prior to me working with him. And it went from me working with one one of the gymnasts in the gym to having the whole squad within a couple of weeks. And that was kind of really my first footsteps into strength and conditioning. And then uh, England Netball and England Rugby advertised for, I think, what were probably the first two strength and conditioning jobs that were actually labelled that in the UK. Um, I applied for both. England Rugby didn't fancy me, but they went for Calvin Morris. Again, probably a good choice. Um, But England Netball came in for me and it it was great. That was where I really learned sort of on the job of being an S&C coach and, and unlike now I was probably fortunate I could cut my teeth and make mistakes um, and, and learn on the job went across to the English Institute of Sport after that which was phenomenal experience working across multi-sports able-bodied Paralympians um, and headed up the team in the West Midlands for a number of years and then again because of where the profession was there was kind of a ceiling as to how high you could go as a coach I think coaches weren't and probably still aren't valued in in the grand scheme of things and the only way to progress is to sit behind a desk and be more of an administrative role and that was certainly the case in 2007 I grew increasingly frustrated and I I think I became a pretty crappy coach for about a nine month period um, where it was like I could turn up do the job go home I just started to stagnate, I think, and I was probably a bit of a dick (laughs) to be around um, on reflection and decided to make the move and and move up to Newcastle with the family um, and and go it alone, really. And it, you know, that was interesting. That didn't go quite as planned. Um, The job that I sort of did a handshake on fell through very quickly. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I need to make some money now. Um, And I'm in a different city and I've got a new like 18 month old kid on the way um and like what do I do so I went and really started working in personal training I guess you would call it you know but the SNC snobs would would not allow you to say that so it's <laughs> SNC um and I sort of set up my own little private facility for five years which I ran and then gradually over those five years I sort of started to bring my way back into performance sport gradually um, until I was really doing performance sport and a little bit of PT and, and then flipped the coin and just after London 2012 just said right that's it performance consultant totally performance-based sport that's where I'm going to go and um, yeah I'm not quite sure how it's panned out to, to go so well over the last five years you know but you just get your head down and work hard I guess. Mm-hmm. That's class. There's loads of things I've written down off the back of that just to dive, <laughs> dive a little bit deeper. Yeah. Where do you where do you think the this is a, this is a, I'm going to start with a big one. Where do you think the S and C industry is in the UK at the minute? How do you think it's progressed? Like you say, over the five years that have been good for you, yeah. Where's the industry going that time, and where do you think it's going? I, see, I mean. It's difference between night and day. Like that, that first job working for netball, strength and conditioning. I remember, um, and I don't think John Brewer will probably mind me saying this. So John Brewer was my boss at the Lishaw, um, and I, and, you know, is a, a respected exercise physiologist and sports scientist, and was one of the you know key people in those early years. So when I said I was going to leave British gymnastics, which was a, it's probably one of the best sports, one of the best sports I've worked with, to go to netball, um, and 
quite disparaging about netball. He was like, you, you, to be a strength and conditioning coach, you're committing career suicide. What are, you, what are you doing? Who wants a strength and conditioning coach? It's about sports science. Um, and, and I think that was the state of the nation then was it wasn't really a profession. And to see the formation of the UK SCA, uh, which comes in for a lot of stick. But again, if you look at, you know, being in those initial meetings in Scotland to see where it is now, you know, just visiting the, the most recent conference and seeing the membership and the, the standard of the conference and what they are trying to do. And of course, they can't do things quick enough for everybody out there in social media land. Um, but the profession is, it's growing quickly. And I guess like any profession that grows really quickly, sometimes, you know, it's a bit of an ugly baby and it's not always perfect. <laughs> I think I think some of the universities are probably added to the problem because, again, I think it's similar to what happened with sports science degrees. You know, all of a sudden sports science became sexy. Everyone was getting a hard on about working in sports science and, you know, every university was cobbling together a sports science degree. And I think that happened with strength and condition. And I think that was compounded after 2012 when we had such a fantastic Olympics and people started getting recognition from athletes, you know, strength and conditioning started getting talked about. All of a sudden, I think universities were like, right, brilliant. And and I know of examples, there are some brilliant courses out there. You know, there's some brilliant undergrad and postgrad courses, but there are also some that have kind of just amalgamated existing modules and attached it and called it S&C. So you've got hundreds and thousands of graduates coming into the uh, like um, school age leavers coming into the system with this idea of I'm going to work with Man United or I'm going to work with Jessica Ennis I'm going to do whatever it's going to be flipping amazing um, and the reality is, is different and it's not it's not to say that it's it's not possible it's just going with your eyes open and I think so it's, so it's massively competitive Rob I think you know it's but I think actually there are more opportunities than people on social media mm-hmm. will, will lead you to believe because certainly when I when I first started, it was only really sport and high-performance sport that you could work as a strength and conditioning coach. That was your option. Um, and you were going to get paid peanuts. Um, my wife earned way more than I did as a teacher for, for many, many years. Um, and I think now... If, if you um, confine yourself to just wanting to work in high-performance sport the minute you leave university, you're going to be screwed. But if you actually open your eyes and go, okay, where's some of the opportunities that are maybe a little bit more left field? There are loads of um, performance-based gyms, private gyms that are opening up around the country. There are youth development specialists. There are schools and colleges and universities that, that have got – strength and conditioning programs that never existed. Um, there are sports men and women that are taken on board S&C coaches. So I think it it's still freaking hard. You know, it is a bit like the Wild West and you've got to, as I say in the book, you know, you've got to come armed to the teeth if you want to get the job. But I think there are opportunities out there if you want them and if you want to do the work to get there. Uh, and I'm not talking about the grind and let's all – Let's all tell everyone how hard we work and how many hours we work because, like, no one really gives a shit. Um, it's like, oh, great, well, that's that's brilliant. But, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of work and you kind of have to earn your stripes and you have to go through the process. Um, 
and no one just appears overnight being asked to, to work with these teams or, or getting the contracts or having a, a nice car, if that's what excites people. It's like everyone that I know that who are perceived to have made it or are in those big jobs have all grafted, you know, and are still grafting as well, by the way. So I know a long answer, but I think it's it's transformed massively. And I think contrary to popular uh, sort of learned helplessness that, that's getting sort of pushed out there, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there if you look for it and work hard enough. So you mentioned coming in, knowing the full picture and coming in armed. What think what what do you think people are doing wrong when they are ent- entering the industry thinking they're gonna obviously first thing they're thinking they're gonna work at Man United from day one? But what other things could they potentially do to actually do themselves that get themselves in the best possible position? to get something that's going to get them going. What is there anything out there that you see that people are doing poorly, people that should be, you know, thinking about slightly differently? Yeah, so I, th- I don't think people have a plan. I don't think they have a basic plan of how they're going to go from point A to point B. And the people that come to me and, and ask for some, some guidance and mentorship nearly, all, nearly always start at, okay, so in 18 months, how are you going to get there? Or in two years, how are you going to get there? And they've given no sort of real thought, no real intelligent process. You know, planning and periodization. <laughs> People do it for athletes. They don't do it for their own careers. So one of the big things is like a professional development plan. And say, okay, well, if you want to go to this point, there are some stepping stones. There's some stages that you've got to complete. And it's a, it's a six-month, 12-month, five-year process. You can't just all of a sudden expect to graduate and, and get the job. So I think... I'm not sure people are shown or know how to plan short, medium, and long-term for their career progression. Um, I don't think people want to do the work. Um, and yeah, I'm making myself really popular with all the students, aren't I? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I just think there is a sense of entitlement sometimes, and that's probably exacerbated by the courses um, – I think people need a reality check. And I think I said at the conference, don't go in blinkered and, and don't get all depressed by all the naysayers that are saying, oh, well, it's there's no jobs. Because that's kind of bullshit as well. I think it's go into it, but with your eyes wide open about this is going to be tough. You're going to have to work hard. But if you plot your path logically, as you would with an athlete's training program, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that you'll get there. And I've been fortunate to, to help aspiring S&C coaches. And I know that the ones that really sort of get it and, and sort of kind of screw the nut on this, they go on to big things. You know, a lot of them are now interviewing me for positions or, or talking to me about <laughs> consultants. They're the ones hiring and firing, you know, and it's like, yeah, it is possible to, to do it. Um, but not if you read social media, because if you read social media, we're all doomed. Screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think do you think people already in jobs are in a very similar position that they don't actually plan or don't know how to plan and execute on the plan if they do have one? Yeah. yeah. To, to to move jobs? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. It's like it's like the, the student that gets to um March in their year three of their studies and goes, Oh, oh shit, I need to get a job. Well, I'll, I'll start applying for jobs. It's too late then, mate. You know, people have been doing work experience, people have been doing voluntary roles. You you are at the back of the queue, 
And I think you, I see it with people that particularly are in what are perceived to be safe jobs, maybe um, a home institute or a um, football club or rugby club, and they've been there for a while, maybe they've come up through the ranks. It's very easy to all of a sudden be five to six years deep in an academy role and you've got aspirations of maybe going to first team or maybe switching clubs or whatever it is or going direct to work for a sport if you're EIS. And well, there's no use, no use thinking about it at the end of the Olympic cycle when every other man and his dog is also in that race. You know, If you think, well, okay, 2020 is when I think I'll be ready to move from this Olympic cycle, you've got to start planning now. You know, you've got to start making your connections and your move early. I guess it's a bit like chess. I can't play chess. It's too difficult. I do drafts. <laughs> but it's like, you know, your chess masters play multiple moves ahead. You've got to start plotting how you want things to go. And it, it's, it's never going to go exactly to plan. But, you know, you've got to have a plan and then you can revert to plan B. I, I've not planned necessarily. I never thought I'd work in professional football. Like, God's honest truth, I never thought I'd work in professional football. But I can probably now go back and track back 15 years and connect the dots to actually how that works. And some of it was planned, but not necessarily with an outcome in mind, if that makes sense. But making connections, thinking about who the, the right people are to talk to, um, the right conferences to go to, you know, I just think people just haven't got a plan. I, I, I thank my dad. My dad was like instrumental in helping me like craft CVs and covering letters. And, and I'm, I'm glad he spent the time when I was kind of 15, 16, sat there telling me how to write covering letters because, you know, covering letters and CVs that I see are horrific that come through, you know. What are the common problems that you see, Nick? Oh, they just, they, they can't spell. <laughs> like, and like, can't spell, poor grammar, and I'm not the best, but get it, like, if, if you're that worried, go on Fiverr or, or people per hour. There are people there that will spell check and, like, proofread stuff for you. Um, and and candidates sometimes go, oh, well, you're just being picky. Well, yeah, but if you can't, if I can't trust you to get the grammar right or the comma or the decimal place in the right place, when you're then given a report to a performance director that is the difference between an athlete making a team and not making a team, I want to be damn sure you're getting the decimal point in the right place. So it's, that tells me like attention to detail. Um, running off just generic emails and letters that you know is a standard format, not taking the time to learn about the institution or the people that you're going to work with, you know, just poorly formatted. Um, you can always tell ones that have come straight out of universities because it's Times Roman numeral 12, double space font. It looks like a dissertation. <laughs> It's like the driest arse. Like, <laughs> it's like you've, you've, if I'm sitting there looking at 150 CVs, something has got to catch my eye, you know, and make it make my life easy as an employer to, to put you into the, the file to, to be considered for the next step. Um, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's a lost art, mate. I think CV writing, covering letters is, is a lost art. I think dealing with rejection is a lost art as well. You know, people just spit their dummy and, and that's it. Oh, I've been rejected. Door's shut. The door's not shut. Stick your foot in it. Keep it ajar. Go and ask them for some feedback. Go and ask if you can go in and spend some time. with. Like, there's loads of things that you can do to keep that ticking over. Um, you just have to be an annoying little twat at times as well. You've just got to pester power 
done the right way is, is really useful. Just keep yourself at the top of people's minds. Um, and, and I know that I've been that annoying person with people, but it's, it's definitely paid dividends in the future because then they're like, oh, actually, oh, yeah, Nick is available for work. Uh, I know that because I saw him six weeks ago and he mentioned, you know, it's, I just think people want it to fall on their laps, Rob, sometimes. I sound freaking old. I sound old now, you know. Um, and, and, don't, and, and people shouldn't think for a minute that jobs just like, that I'm just tripping over myself getting loads of jobs. It's like, <laughs> I have, I'm, still, I'm still having to sort of do all the things that I talk about in, in your hide. I'm doing them myself because like, I'm up against the great and the good of, of performance sport as well. So you know, I don't just sit back and think, oh, yeah, that big performance gig will rock up and I'll, I'll get that next year. You've, you've got to work towards it. Do you get emails just from people who are trying to do this type of thing, trying to keep themselves at the top of, well, top of your mind with, with when, when jobs come up and yeah. are doing that? Are people doing that well or are people doing that poorly as well, do you think? I think, yeah, I think one of the best books that I read was Never Eat Alone. I think that's, that's a really good book. And actually, I always tell people how to win friends and influence people. Um, although that gets a bit of a battering in, in some more contemporary books. But I, I like both of those books. And what what they help me realize is, you know, how to win friends and influence people is basically you've got to appeal to people's egos. You know, this is about working with coaches as, as much as anything. But so if someone writes to me, like, I've got, I've got an ego, you've got an ego. So if someone writes to me and says, Nick, um, just wanted to, touch base with you i've been reading your work on recovering regeneration i really like the recovery strategies that you put in place and all of a sudden i'm thinking oh he's really <laughs> i like this guy i like <laughs> this guy this guy's clearly fucking switched on so now, I'm, so now i'm reading it and then if they say look you know i would like to explore an opportunity to maybe grab a coffee with you just have a quick chat 10 minutes of your time and so i'm thinking oh 10 minutes is fine that's good that gives me a chance to do the dickhead test and find out whether you're an I, I need to move on or actually 10 minutes turns into half an hour, turns into half a day and you can stay with me and we, we, we work through it. And, and then, you know, the offer of doing something for me saying, look, you know, I'm happy to um, data collect for you, do whatever it is. I, I talk about it in the book, you know, create an eager want because, and this isn't being like Bertie big bollocks, people are busy. So if, if someone wants to have a chat with you or, shadow you or be mentored by you like this sounds really selfish but what kind of what am i going to get out of that as well is there a way that you can help me you know so i'm going to give you a day of my time but actually let's do that on a day when i need some data collection done and i'm not going to take the piss and and like exploit what you're doing but you know it's, it's a little bit of give and take and we we see that when we do cpd events um at the clubs that i've worked at and other clubs that i've gone to sometimes i'll say to a colleague look i'd love to come in and see what you do at Welsh Rugby, for instance, and the coach would say, yeah, that, that's great, come down and spend a day with us, but what we'd like you to do in return is present to us on this topic. So it's like, yeah, you can come and spend a day with us and we'll give you some insight, but we also want something back from you. And it's just it's human nature, isn't it? It's like, you know, pay it forward. So I think people have got, a bit, got to get a bit cuter about how they approach the, the people that they kind of, the jobs that they want they're, you know, someone wants to do my job. Someone wants to do Duncan French's job. So how do you how do you go about that? Don't just go, hi, can I come out and spend a day at the UFC with you? Because I'm in Vegas on a stag weekend. <laughs> uh, that's that's probably not going to end positively, you know. 
I think I'm 100% with you on Never Eat Alone because I've read that, I think, twice or three times now. And one thing that stands, one thing that stands out to me, and I think you can get by this if, you, if you're in an interview, if you've done all the things that you've just said, which is the first question should be for any employer, would I have a, go out for a drink with this guy? And if it's a no, well, how are you going to spend eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours a day with this guy? But I think you can tick that box if you've met them before. And people are like, I think people are doing it, like you say, people are, in, even in your position, are still going out to do all the things you've just said, whether it's Welsh rugby or Scottish rugby or I just want to, you know, pick your brain about X, Y, and Z. And whether you're Nick Grantham or whoever, people are always, if, if you do it in the right way, people are always happy to give up, like you say, 10 minutes, buy them a coffee, 10 minutes leads into, like you say, an hour, half a day, and you, you're at top of people's minds again. But I yeah. think... I mean, I've I've had a I've had a couple of emails asking to be put in touch with various different people, and sometimes it's and I've spoken to Brett about this um, on previous podcasts. Him getting emails with like his name spelt wrong, like one T, lowercase yeah. B, and you're like, oh my <laughs> days, really? And it just yeah. goes, and it's just a generic email that's been fired out with the under the premise that this person is networking. Like this is what people see networking as. Fire a bunch of emails out, try to get a couple of replies, and think, "Yeah, that guy knows my name now." And I have to just—I think if you read that, any of them, either of them two books or both of them two books are absolute gold for that. Yeah, Never Eat Alone really helped me because I, I am like—I am an introvert, but really, I'm quite happy sat in the corner, not not talking to people, and just just watching what's going on. And and then obviously I do my talks and stuff, and I, I kind of flip it. And, and become quite extroverted but I'm at my happiest kind of on my, on my own in my own company just sitting back and watching so I used to go to conferences and not talk to anybody not talk to any of the speakers ask questions and, and never eat alone really kind of forced my hand to look at conferences differently and go okay Vern Gambetta speaking at this conference I'm going to go to breakfast a bit, a bit of a stalker type thing and figure out oh Vern sat there so rather than going sitting across the other side you know, just politely, would you mind if I joined you for breakfast? And now he could turn around and say no, but he didn't. He's like, yeah, come and have a, come and have a seat, Nick. Let's have a chat. And then, then you're into a conversation. You don't go straight in and bombard him with, like, technical questions, you know, trying to establish a bit of friendship if you can. But, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're great books. I think people just – they don't know how to talk to people, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And also they think, that, they think they're rock stars. None of these people are rock stars. They just – when did that happen? When did strength yeah. coaches become rock stars? It's like, really? They're just normal people yeah. that make other people sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> I definitely think it's the whole, like, having this thing in your head that you want something from this person. Like, I've, I, like Vern sat there. I wonder what he could do. Like, does he know him? Because I want a job with him and I want to go see him, want to meet him. And it's just actually, just sit down and have a chat and just talk shit to this guy because... Probably everyone's doing the whole asking about his, his his conference presentation when he just wants to, I don't know, talk about his holiday or talk about anything that's not what everyone else talks to him about. And I think that's probably where people get it wrong because they actually want to come across clever, want to come across interesting, where just be interested in the person and get them to speak about the travel over from America or whatever, anything that's not too technical. So... Um, 
But I just want to move it on to something that we've we've spoken about before and something that I've been reasonably active on on social media about, and that's the creation of multiple income streams. I know we we spoke about that about a while ago and how you were doing multiple things whilst well probably still doing multiple things to get multiple <laughs> income streams, but as yeah, you, even in full time employment, still doing extra because of you know whatever reason you had for doing that. But yeah. just want to explain to us what you did and what you were doing and why and why you continue to have multiple things going on. The benefits of that. So, so I think I I think it's. I got it when I read years ago, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. I think I've probably horrendously pronounced his name. I think it was that book. I could be wrong because I've got a sneaky suspicion it might be from another book I read. But in, in, in one of those books, it was about you should always have a second job. And this was at the time when I worked for British Gymnastics. I, I had a full-time job, and it was like you should always have a side hustle going. Um not necessarily because it's going to make you loads of money or because it's a fallback position, although that those two things can happen, but just it, it's a good habit to get into and have, have another interest. And sometimes that side hustle then actually turns into being the main job. So I, I was just reflecting on it. Well, like when I worked at British Gymnastics, I, um, I wrote articles for Peak Performance and Sports Injury Bulletin, which at the time of contacting them, I, was, I wanted to do it to, to generate some articles for my basis accreditation. Then... It's an absolute touch. They're like, oh, we'll pay you as well. And I was like, this, <laughs> this is freaking brilliant because I was going to do it for free, but you're going to pay me. So I was working for gymnastics. I was writing some articles once a month or once every couple of months. I, I, ran a, uh, I worked for a guy that ran Lily Shaw Circuits. It would be a boot camp now because everything's a boot camp uh, or cr- probably like a predecessor of CrossFit. But we, we ran a, a circuit class on a Tuesday and a Thursday each week. And I also did some – work for the Northwest Sports Science Support Project. And like some of that was to generate income because I was not on a lot of money. I think I was on about eight and a half grand at the time, which probably equates to about 12,000, 13,000 now. Um, so some of it was to supplement the income and pay the mortgage. But more than that, it was the circuits taught me how to work with groups. The, the presentations, my first presentations were horrific, um, but I got to work with some really good people like Dave Collins to talk to me about how to work with the judo players that I, when I stood in for him for a presentation, it, it was, you know, everything had a, had a reason um, and some of them got paid and some of them didn't. Uh, but I've no doubt that they've all been massively influential on what, what I've gone on to do in, in later years. Definitely. So I think, I, I know when you put the stuff out on social media, there were a lot of negatrons jumped on, about you know side hustle and it's because we get paid peanuts and that's why you shouldn't be doing that if we got paid a proper weight like there's there's a real mentality shift like i never i never looked at doing the side hustle as a negative thing i was just like this is just extra stuff that i enjoy doing and i'm going to get paid for it maybe or maybe not and it's going to give me some really valuable experience it's just i've i've seen i've seen colleagues who have had jobs at so the Institute of Sport, they've been very safe in that job. The perception is that I've got a job that's guaranteed for four years and I'm full-time, that's all I need to do. And then one day the team bombs, uh, they get funding cut and now your full-time position has become a 0.6 position um, and we can't fill that with another 0.4, so you're going to need to do some other stuff. And they're screwed because they're thinking about it 
now. Whereas if you had a little side hustle, or a little circuit class going, or some writing work, you could you could upregulate that and go, okay, I'm going to write an article a week rather than an article every two months. It's like I, I don't get it. I think it's a mentality thing. I and think and it may it may come from my dad having three jobs, and I never really thought this was a thing. I just thought everyone did that. But my dad is his week job. He on a Saturday and Sunday he also drove private hire taxis, and on a Sunday morning he worked at a petrol station. And I just thought that was kind of what normal people did. <laughs> um, like fucking, doesn't everyone have three jobs? What did he do for the Wigneck? What what was his main job? Uh, so my dad was a um, a facilities manager, so uh, a large. Um, uh, I think I think like industrial complex. So we managed all the facilities, so making sure that uh, all the things that you need in the factory to make it work were there. So the gas supplies, all run the maintenance department. So like a, a management job, um, which you know he worked hard, but then would drive people to Heathrow Airport in, in the taxi uh, on a Saturday, Friday night, Saturday, and then go and work at a petrol station up the road. And I was just like, oh, that's just that's what you do in it. Um, so. So yeah, like I'm not some sort of martyr or some sort of saint and work really hard. It's just I don't get all the moaning people about having a side hustle. I think it's a good thing to do. We're just going to do a very quick break in the chat with Nick. I hope you're enjoying a very entertaining part one. So in part two, we discuss uh, consultancy. And obviously Nick's a consultant at the minute, working with a number of contracts. So we discuss where that sits in the industry and how he's found it difficult to actually convince people that is the way to go, um, to obviously fit around uh, where he wants to take things in terms of his own career. So we also discuss some interesting books that he has, some more interesting books that have influenced um, his career so far. So part two is gonna be, well, it is incredible, just like part one. So just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguescience.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So over to part two with Nick, hope you enjoy. So you mentioned personal training, the, the group sessions, the circuits. Yeah. Why? Because it can be so valuable monetary-wise and just for experience because the amount of people that have come on the podcast and and spoken about their how they came up through personal training and eventually got into pro sport. Why why is it look so why is it looked down upon so much when it can do so much for we're, uh, everyone? Because we're snobs, Rob. We're we're freaking snobs, mate. Like and I was I was a snob. I worked at the English Institute of Sport 
and I thought my shit didn't stink. Okay, I, I thought I was amazing because I worked with all these Olympic athletes. And then I remember talking to Alan Cosgrove when we were on holiday visiting him. And he's like, yeah, you know, you've got some good athletes there, Nick. He said, but those athletes have to come and work with you. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's part of their agreement with their sport that they have to train out of your facility. They've not picked you to work with. He's like, whereas I work privately and run my own facility, so anyone that comes to work with us, if we do a crappy job, they'll leave. Um, and I was like, oh, you bugger. He's, he's right there. Um, and, and that was kind of a bit of a, a paradigm shift for me where, where I thought my shit didn't stink and that all PTs were rubbish and all S&C coaches were amazing to, to actually go in, do you know what? And, and, it's, and I've, been, I've been proved, it's proven itself over the years because I've worked a lot with personal trainers and, and private facilities in London um, and around the country. There are some amazing people that work with general population, recreational athletes that will call themselves personal trainers and they would out-coach some of the SSE coaches that I've seen um, operating with, with sports. It's just they work in a different domain, and we should stop being so snobby. There are, there are great personal coaches. There are indifferent personal coaches. There are shitty ones. But the same can be said about strength and conditioning coaches. There are some really good ones. There are some bang average ones, and there are some awful ones. Um, we just have this perception because we work in sport, and isn't that freaking awesome that, that we're somehow superior to them? And I'm, I'm like, I, I see some great practice taking place in, in like the, these performance-based gyms um, that, that would outdo many S&C coaches. I've really made myself popular with the S&C coaches. <laughs> pissed off students, pissed off S&C coaches. And it's, a, and it's another one of the opportunities that you mentioned about the things that people don't actually consider. Like, oh, there's no jobs. Well, yeah, there is. You're just looking at Man United, waiting for Man United to post their head of S&C job, which you're not going to get because of it's already filled anyway. But Mate, I, I moved to Newcastle on a handshake to work for an organisation that was going to be kind of performance sport. It was going to be awesome. Within three months, that, that had gone properly wrong um, for, for reasons I, I won't go into. <laughs> um, nothing to do with me, but the people that were organising that. And I was sat there with a mortgage to pay having just moved to the area and I was like well, what am I going to do what I, I can sit here and moan that I can't work for Newcastle United or Newcastle Falcons or I can figure out a way of getting some personal training going and and work with general population and recreational athletes and 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 do that and that's what I did and you know it wasn't easy and there are times that you I was on the bones of my ass um but you know, it, it was either that or what do you do? You go and stack shelves somewhere. Not that there's anything wrong with stacking shelves. Um, but I, I just, yeah, I, I think people just have a snobbery. It's like, I've, I've had people that have wanted to get jobs and they're like, oh, I don't want to work at a university. Well, I'm sorry, you've just graduated. You can't be that freaking fussy. <laughs> and actually, a university program may be the best place to go because do you know what? You can probably make a few mistakes and it's not going to be catastrophic. Because, you know, you're working with uh, a student population, student athletes, you know, you might not have the highest level. You can go there, you can figure out your systems and your processes. Don't be so bloody arrogant that you think that working at a university is below you or working at a private gym is below you. It's like, just go and do it. Go and work. 
Um, and and then find your way if performance sport is what you want. Find your way into it. And I think in them sort of settings as well. And I've spoken to a couple of people. Um, Kevin Carr, who was at um, Mike Boyle's place, and just comparing what his day looked like to someone in say an academy working with an under 18s team, just the amount of time he's actually in front of a client or a group of clients. He's like six hours a day in front of people waiting for them waiting for him to tell them what to do. Whereas you look at an academy under 18, they may have what an hour and a half, two hours if, yeah. at most, yeah. at like most, if they've got the rehab group and a normal group and just obviously three times more than three times the amount of coaching. So at the, at the right time, and if that's what you want to do, that could be absolutely priceless. But people just see the badge. Yeah. People, people love the tracksuit, as we've said before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But one thing that you mentioned right at the start, which I want to, which kind of fits in, I suppose, where we are now in the conversation, was your stagnation as a coach. And I think this is this is something that I'd like to bring up because it's something that I've spoken to quite a lot of people about. And I think there's you mentioned that the people who are in perceive how you perceive a really decent job title, decent club, decent institution, whatever it may be, but are actually probably quite unhappy because they're not allowed to do what they feel is the best thing to do. They've got their, you know, one hand or both hands behind the back because of various different reasons. But why was it that you, why was it that you stagnated? And do you think there's what, and what, what got you out of it? Um, so at, at the time, the, the the profession hadn't evolved so I think I said before coaches and coaching I think it's still the case is undervalued you know so somehow being a coach in your 50s and 60s is, is still looked down at it's like oh you haven't made it Nick because you're 46 and you're still coaching uh, on the floor um, so people, it's, think, uh, people actually think that people generally think that definitely mate yeah. definitely mate yeah I, I guarantee it. I 100% guarantee it because I'm not a director of performance sport at yeah, okay. a club Somehow, somehow, I've I've failed um, because you're out on the floor. But again, I was away with a, a team in September, and I, and I look at the coaches out there, you know, fifties, sixties, and working with a, a young group of players. And I looked and I thought, you know, what? this is this is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> this, this is this is brilliant, you know, because those coaches are, are so knowledgeable and such enthusiasm. But you know, job titles and and all that sort of stuff. So when I was at the English Institute of Sport. The, the organisation was was not mature enough to once you became a senior S and C coach and I was running the department um, for a number of years, there was nowhere for me to go other than behind a desk at, at that time, you know. And I suggested becoming maybe a specialist in a particular area. Recovery and regeneration was something that interested me. So, do I become the the EIS's specialist in that and take a sabbatical for a year and visit all the places and and come back and do that do I become a specialist um in a particular sport combat sports was my thing um you know so do you do you mold it that way and at, at the time there wasn't the capacity to do that you be you had to go behind the desk and I think I became increasingly frustrated and disenfranchised with it and I and I like looking back at it I probably was an absolute dick at times for the, for the last six to nine months of my my time at the EIS and you know yeah, that's me being perfectly honest with you. And I think I became a lazy coach. It, it was easy. I could still be at the IS now, Rob, working. I, and and I, I could have done that till the cows come home. 
it, it would have been very easy to go in at nine o'clock, finish at five o'clock, put my reports in, train the athletes. The athletes have to come and work with me. Um, and, I, and I saw that coming and I, and I didn't like it because I, I could feel myself getting worse as a coach. I could feel myself being a bit of a negatron um, around the place. Um, and I, I, I remember after one meeting in particular, which hadn't gone particularly well with my regional manager, um, through no fault of his own, you know, on reflection, just me being a bit of an ass. Um, <laughs> I remember driving home and, and talking to my wife in the car on, on the phone and she's like, just leave just leave because you're not happy um and i've had conversations with people since then that have been like that one person who used to get physically sick at the thought of going back into work and wow like fortunately my wife she was just like what's the what's the worst that's gonna happen uh we end up without a house and we'll go and live at our parents my mum and dad will take us in we'll, we'll be fine you'll go and do pt somewhere or your stack shelves or whatever just leave and um, I remember I wrote my resignation that night I went in the next day and I didn't really have a job to go to <laughs> so it was quite ballsy and I just just had the notice in and it was like okay well what, what are you going to go and do I was like I don't know <laughs> uh, I, I don't, but I know that I don't want to be here um, and the minute that I did that it was freaking awesome because yeah, it was just like this weight had been lifted um, and it was scary as well. My ass was twitching massively. Um, but what then happened was all of a sudden you've got this clock ticking and you're like, shit, I need to get some work. So I now need to make sure these side hustles become the, the main thing that I'm doing. I need to make sure I keep my network active. I need to be a busy little bastard out there. Um, and it really concentrated my mind. And I think what stops me from, from getting lazy now is as a consultant, Yes, I've got some. I've got a number of contracts that are that are in the air and that, that I work on. But at any point, one or more of those contracts could drop. So I think, you know, I'm always looking at other revenue sources and other other ways of working, so that if something does drop, that you're not going to be left kind of uh, high and dry without being able to pay the mortgage. Do you? And this is something that I've come across very recently so definitely a personal experience here do you are you concerned that because you're a consultant and i know this is this is the the nature of being a consultant that you've got multiple things going on and things do just drop and you pick something else up that's hopefully on the back burner but do, how do people how do others see that how do the, the the wild wide world out there see that that you will be at one place and then a week later be at another place do people understand that or do people see that as this guy's moving around a lot? Um, I think firstly, people can't figure out how I live in Newcastle and then spent five years working at West Brom <laughs> and then go and then go to Wales for a day to work with a mountain bike team. I think people that people can't get their head around that. It's not that difficult. You're like if it was that bad, I wouldn't do it. Um, you, again, it's mindset. You just get yourself up and, and away you go. Um, so I, I think. Yeah, potentially it could harm me. I think certainly in the early years, when you look, you, you might look a little bit flighty, as you say. So you, you've probably never got a contract for particularly long. But I think now, the, the the longer it goes on, so the consultancy, I guess, is a business. So having a contract with a Premiership football team for five seasons, that's pretty solid. You know, working with a mountain bike team for two seasons is is solid. So you're not jumping ship. It's just it's the nature of what we do. I've certainly been 
I, I, I spoke to, I remember speaking to a professional rugby team and the head of med- medical wanted to get me in as a consultant, but the head physio just couldn't get their head around it. He was like, well, why would we do that? Why would we get you in for two days when I can pay someone to be full-time for the same money? I'm like, yeah, but the money you're going to pay them for full-time means you're going to get a certain quality of coach, whereas pay me for the consultancy and I'll bring a lot more to those two days and will benefit the team. But they just, some people that have been quite traditional and, and company men or women don't necessarily understand what it's like to be a consultant and to have multiple uh, jobs on the go at the same time. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it it can be a positive, I think, but it can also be a, a bit of a negative. I think there are some teams that, that look at it and go, "That's no, great because it keeps you fresh." You know, you've always got constant new ideas coming in from from multiple multiple streams and multiple information points. Do you think more teams? Are going down that route, or do you think it's still quite rare that people have consultants like yourself? I think it's pretty rare. I yeah. think quite a lot of people are scared of it. I, I mean, I'm very Why? fortunate with, um, because I think there's probably still a mindset that you have to work full time and you have to be in somewhere nine till five at least. Um, I, I'm very fortunate. It's the way that I worked as well when I was at the EIS. I didn't give people free reign to take the piss, but it was like, listen, get your job done. If you get your job done between eight and three, that's fine. But then when I call you at a certain point and need you in, I need you in. Um, and you know, giving people a little bit of autonomy and a bit of trust on how they work their day and how they work their week. And it's like, okay, lean into the Olympics. It's hands all hands on deck. Let's work long hours. But then once the teams bugger off to Sydney or, or Athens, right? It's it's get the deck chairs out. Let's put our feet up. Um, and and I think I'm very fortunate with. Um, the people that I've worked with as a consultant, those heads of departments have been um, forward-thinking enough to recognise that actually it's not the hours that we're paying Nick for, it's what he brings to it. I just talked to him about myself in the third person. Uh, <laughs> retract, retract, retreat. Oh, my <laughs> God. Reverse. Yes. That's unbelievable. <laughs> um, oh. oh, I'm going to have to have a serious word myself. Um <laughs> No, I think I think you know what what they recognise is that actually when when I go in, so long as the job gets done, if you're given a set of tasks, whether that takes you twelve hours or six hours or four hours, it doesn't matter. Just make sure it gets done, um, and they're quite comfortable with the fact that there may be weeks. So there are weeks where I'm away, so I, I go away with a team for for ten days on a training camp, but that then means that when I come back, rather than doing two days a week, I'll do four days in a week, it, like. It's all it ebbs and flows, and it's for me. It's about managing those caseloads and those workloads. And I guess I'm fortunate that the, the, the two or three people that I work with uh, have got the right mindset. But you certainly come up against a lot that are like, "Oh no, you should be full time." I don't get that. Why are you leaving at three o'clock? I always, I always get, "Oh, half day today is it?" Yeah, right? classic. I'm like, are you fucking sure. <laughs> uh, where's the, where's the, what time did you get up this morning? I got up at four o'clock to get here for an eight o'clock breakfast meeting, which you were late for, by the way. And you came from half an hour away, so don't give me the half day shout. Um, yeah, it, I think there is still that kind of full time mentality. Whereas, uh, get even when I work with netball, I work from home from, with netball, so I would have to go into headquarters in Hitchin probably once or twice a month, and then the rest of the time I worked out of my bedroom and. The performance director at the time was one of the best performance directors I've ever worked with. It's just like, get your job done, Nick. If you don't hit your targets, if you don't do your work, then you're going to get a bollocking. But 
Um, and, and by the way, I know that you've been at a training camp from Friday night till till late Sunday night, so I don't expect to see any emails getting answered on Monday. I expect you to be at home doing whatever it is. Just relax. Um, so I've, I've been very lucky that I've I've just had good people to work with. I guess that that comes with being able to do that comes with clear aims that you agree with the the client that you've got X, yeah. Y, and Z to do. And if that takes yeah. till three, well, everyone's happy because you've hit them them certain things. And if it takes yeah. till half three, four, five, as long as them things are done, it doesn't actually make any difference. But being clear on that is obviously essential right from the get-go so everyone knows what is expected on both sides. Yeah, and I, and I think as a consultant, I reckon I'm way more productive than I am as a, mm. as a nine-to-fiver. Nine-to-fiver, because you just it's just dead time. Like if I'm a consultant, I'm going to try and bang it out and get it done, and then get on the road. Um, you know, it's. I, I think consultants can be a lot more productive. I think you get more bang for your buck. Um, you know, as as organisations, if it if it's if you get the right person and um, you you use them properly, I think it's been really beneficial. Do you think people will see or hear your situation and think that sounds unbelievable? I want to do that. Yeah, they want to. They want to do it straight from yeah. university. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's the thing. Well, I was fifteen years deep into my my career before I really really went out as a as a consultant. So I moved up to here in two thousand and seven as a consultant, and it was two thousand and twelve that I put my nuts on the line and and properly went just one hundred percent as a consultancy and didn't have the sort of backup of of the gym. So yeah, but but people don't see that. People just see. Oh yeah, that's that's what I want. Well, you can have it, but you you will have to work quite hard for it as as you go along. Nice. Well, I'm I'm we're coming to the because what no, no no athletes or sports are just going to go. Oh yeah, I want to work with him. He's just graduated. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, who are you? What what have you done? What's your experience? You know, it takes time to build that up. So we're, we're coming to the end of the hour, and and I'm keeping you all night. But are you, right, you've mentioned your hired. Where can people get your hired? Um, so various sources. So you, you can go to the usual sort of suspects like Amazon and Barnes Noble, but they yep. take more greater cut of the the profits, which is not the Nick Grantham Holiday Fund in Barbados. <laughs> it, it all goes to it all goes to charity, Marie Curie and the Richard Holmes um, Award with the UKSA. So I would direct people to Lulu. Dot com. So don't go lulu.co.uk, otherwise you get the 1960s singer. Um, <laughs> but go go lulu.com. Or you can go onto my website. Actually, there's a link there. So nickgrantham.com, there's a direct link through. And they give the biggest percentage of the proceeds um, to, to the charities. And your hired goes into the detail that we we chatted about right at the start with the transition to... Yeah, so... so that came about because I was getting loads of emails and I kept saying the same things in emails and I thought, okay, I'm just going to write a book about it, um, as you do, and and did did that. So there's loads of um, – it's written the way I've probably spoken tonight as well. So if you've, if you've liked today's podcast and you'll enjoy the book, it, there's, a, there's a bit of blue in there. There's a little bit of effing and jeffing. Um, I, have a, I have a dig at a few people. But I, but I kind of talk from the heart, like passionately, and there's there's tasks in there for people to complete about – you know, how do you develop a personal development program? How do you uh, actually understand where you are on a scale of naught to ten, and ten being the perfect coach? You know, and then how do you 
network how do you write cvs there's, there's a bunch of stuff we, i'm gonna i'm gonna do a companion book i said i was gonna do it this year but it's it's not happened but there is a companion book that we're going to do uh with about sort of 25 to 30 coaches giving their story so a bit like you've talked to me tonight i guess that we're going to put that down just to show that there's because my my pathway is one one way into the profession duncan french's would be completely different brett bartholomew's would be completely different you know so we're going to get all those guys and, and men and women to talk about how they've become coaches so that would that be a companion to go with it 2019 it's not gonna happen this year nice and where can people get you on the dreaded social media which i think can be good and not oh, say that as a joke yeah so yeah so social media um i'm on twitter coach nick g uh that can't that's kind of like my more work front facing uh twitter account uh and then if you want uh you can go to zero two two six that's z-e-r-o and then two two six on on instagram um and that's where I don't take myself massively seriously. Um, so there's there's pictures of chocolate cake and, and me playing conkers with my son and stuff. Um, and, and the occasional interesting thing on there. But there's a lot of people that take themselves away. I'm not really trying to sell too much on there either, which which a lot of people on Instagram just kick the crap out mm-hmm. of. It's just like a sales pitch every single post. Uh, whereas mine are probably a little bit more lighthearted, I'd like to think. What's the Instagram handle about? Why zero? <laughs> uh, well, that, that was that was the business name uh, that I okay. sort of developed five five years ago. So, um, so I, I sat down with a guy that did sort of marketing and that. He's like, "You got to come up with a cool name." So I went, "Ah, oh, yeah, numbers quite." Nineteen seventy two. He's like, "Is that the year you were born?" I was like, oh, yeah, how do you know that?" <laughs> He's like, "That's just so route one. That's just so shit." Um, and I was like, "I thought that was quite good, you know, seventy two. Um, and and then I gave it some thought, and um, I was I was in the loft actually, and I and I've got the number so uh, in taekwondo i competed um at, at world championships and i and i i was never the best athlete like i was okay i just tried hard and didn't know when to quit really um so i made it in 97 to, to a world championships um fought a big fucking horrible russian dude that knocked the shit out of me um but it was, that, that was kind of my best ever performance and then i retired after that um and so zero two two six was actually my my number. So it was, it was zero two two six. So it's a, so it's a play on that. Oh. And for me, it, re- it represents kind of how I work with athletes. It's like trying to help people realise their potential and and get their best performance out. So there's a bit of a it's a bit better than nineteen seventy two, the year you were born, because <laughs> that was that was lame. Um, so it, even if it means nothing to anybody else, it it means it does mean a lot to me actually. Yeah, nice, perfect. Well, I'll stick all the links on uh, online anyway so people can get in touch and drop me some emails with n- Nick with a T or a Z or something and uh, entertain <laughs> you. I'll tell you what, if you really want to piss me off, just write N-I-C, Nick, oh, like, and that, that'll be you consigned to the bin straight <laughs> away. Well, thanks, mate. Really appreciate you uh, giving up your time and having a chat. And I know there was loads of other things that we planned to chat about, but I thought this was the right way to go with just holding on that, on oh, that subject great. so it was yeah great to chat part two if you got time yeah i think yeah look before before i go like to anyone that is like aspiring and wanting to get out there like it is not all doom and gloom and i know they're probably sitting there thinking fucking oh i'm on the bones of my ass and i can't work or whatever like it's tough go into it with your eyes wide open have a plan and like you'll get there if you really want to do it you'll get there definitely so um it's not don't don't listen to all the mood hoovers get out there and go for it (laughs) 
that. And, and five years, I look forward to doing it in five years' time, updating you in five years' time, because that's how long it'll fucking take you to get back to me. No, well, there's going to be a part two, because there's, <laughs> there's a long list of stuff that I've got in front of me that we didn't even touch on. So if you're up for it, we'll have to do a part two, if you got the time. Uh, definitely, Rob, definitely. Yeah, thank you very much for having cool. me. Cool, no worries. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Nick. So firstly, massive thanks to Nick for giving up his time and giving such an honest critique of his own journey and own development, but also of the industry as a whole and those within it and on the periphery of it as well. So also big thanks to to Val Performance and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. The the unbelievable guests keep on coming, trust me. Um, So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. We are now available on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, and now Spotify. So make sure you press subscribe on whichever one you choose to listen to podcasts on. So thanks again for your support, and I will chat to you next week.